On that gorgeous Tuesday morning 20 years ago, Kristen Breitweiser was one of thousands whose lives were shattered forever. Her husband, Ron, a senior vice president at a brokerage firm, was working on the 94th floor of the World Trade Center's South Tower when Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked the airplane that crashed into the building, the second wave of a terror attack that killed nearly 3,000. Breitweiser soon emerged as one of the most outspoken of 9-11 family members, a trained lawyer who prodded lawmakers to create the National Commission to investigate the attack, and ever since she's been embarked on a tireless campaign demanding accountability for the terrorists and for those in authority who allowed the attack to happen. As the country commemorates the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we'll talk to Breitweiser about her own recollections of that terrible day and what still needs to be done. And then we'll talk to Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law and the author of a new book about how 9-11 transformed the country's politics on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Pacetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So we all remember vividly where we were and what we were doing uh, that day on September 11th, 2001. It's kind of like sort of like the Kennedy assassination, something you never forget where you were. In my case, uh, I was on my way to the office at Newsweek. When I heard the news, I rushed into the office. We got up there. Uh, Danny, you were there. And I remember sitting in the, you know, what was uh, Evan Thomas and then Ann McDaniel's big, expansive office with the window. It was actually sm- my office, well, was it your office yeah. at that time? Your big expansive okay. office. Yeah. yeah, I forgot that uh, uh, that era. In any case, uh, <laughs> you could see the smoke coming from the Pentagon because the plane had just crashed into the Pentagon, and you know, for all of us, you know, just the enormity of what had just taken place really hit home. Yeah, Evan Thomas actually, his office was next door to mine. He ran into the office. He was pointing out those big glass doors, and I could see that smoke that you just described billowing up from behind the Pentagon in the distance on the horizon. But what Evan said that I'll never forget, he said, we're under attack. And there was this kind of realization that it was it was this kind of martial moment, this military moment. And later that day, For the first time in the context of U.S. security, I started hearing people refer to the United States as the homeland and the need for homeland security, which had this, you know, weird kind of, you know, World War II Churchillian kind of feel to it. And, you know, it was the sense that, you know, the world had changed. Everything had changed. But at the same time, and I've been kind of reflecting on this over the last few days, there were these kind of early signs on that very day that there was uh, the possibility that that we would overreact to what had happened and that we may go down some dangerous paths for this country and for the world. And the one that I think about is 
I was on the phone with Jeff Bartholet, who was our foreign editor. And among the things he said was, at this point, we didn't quite know how many people had died, but we, we thought it was somewhere in you know the few thousands. And what I remember uh, Jeff saying was, you know, in a place like Bangladesh, he had been a foreign correspondent all over the world, in, you know, uh, 50,000 people die in the, the bat of an eyelash, you know, in a tidal wave or some uh, terrible disaster like that. Now, he wasn't suggesting that the murder of 3,000 Americans wasn't tragic, but I think there was a hint there of how are we going to react to this? And are we going to do things that we might regret as a country? And uh, sure enough, we invaded two countries. Uh, We instituted a torture program. We instituted mass surveillance. And only a few days later, uh, we were seeing these roundups of, you know, Muslims and other foreigners in, in the United States with something called material witness warrants. These were people who had not committed any crimes and weren't even suspected necessarily of terrorism. But there was this impulse to round up the usual suspects and to do that as quickly as possible. Victoria, you were on the Hill uh, at that time working for the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I was uh, I was on the Hill and like like you, Mike, got into the office, turned on the TV and started watching everything that was happening. I I stayed for a fairly long time until a member of the Capitol Police came and banged on my door and said, you need to leave now, run. And that was because at that point, they didn't know where Flight 93 was headed and suspected it might be headed pretty close to our offices. And so I, I think I, I and a few other staffers were amongst the last to leave the, the, uh, the office buildings in the, um, in the Capitol. And to kind of follow up on your point, Danny, I think that almost immediately in those days that followed, there was a, a sense of concern about an overreaction, but it, it, it's hard to forget the kind of the, the deep-seated fear that had struck into the, you know, kind of the, the hearts of every staffer and member of Congress who was dealing with this. I, I happened right. and, and frankly, the, every reporter as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I happened in the immediate aftermath to have been one of the staffers who worked on both the uh, 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund and the creation of that. And I was, I remember being in those uh, kind of rooms as we were negotiating the bill uh, on the night that George Bush addressed the joint sessions of Congress. And we were kind of crafting the legislation at that point in time to create the 9-11's Victim Fund. And it was coupled with, I think, as everyone may recall, a variety of provisions that extinguished the liability of the airline's for any responsibility for what had happened. And there was a a real sense at that stage of the game that basically anything that anyone wanted to get the airlines back up would be granted. And I remember the kind of the the little fights that we were engaged in trying to stop kind of an over-exaggerated, you know, kind of give them anything. And then a few weeks later, I was on the team that negotiated the Patriot Act. I was just going to ask about that. Was there a sense during those deliberations that there were measures there that were going too far that w- that were an overreaction. Absolutely, and I think that there's one thing that people might possibly forget, which is that at least on the Senate side when we were negotiating the uh, Patriot Act, it was in the immediate aftermath of the anthrax attacks. So, it's important to remember that for a lot of the Senate staff, including me, we were literally had been run out of our offices as a result of a domestic terrorism attack. And for the first few days, we were literally writing and negotiating as staff 
the Patriot Act sitting on park benches in front of the Capitol because we didn't even have offices. Eventually, we all managed to find, you know, kind of interim swing offices where we could operate out of. But I had at my disposal at that time, the only file that I had was a few books and a copy of the U.S. Code. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on on the Patriot Act. And and so the and at that moment, everyone, at least amongst the staff that I worked with, really understood that this was big stuff. And, and our major fight was an effort. The biggest fight and the best thing that we could do was to try to sunset provisions of the Patriot Act. That was our savior. We were going to try to make sure that these things would only last for two years or three years and that, that we could revisit them. And we accomplished that in a lot of the provisions, but then three years passed and they got renewed. And then they, another they, three they years passed renewed. and they got expanded. And then another five years passed and they got even more expanded. And I was going to make the point, and those provisions were then used for purposes that went well beyond anything that you were contemplating at the time. I'm thinking most particularly of Section 215, which became the vehicle by which the government began collecting the phone call records of everybody of all of us. And we didn't learn about that until the Snowden revelations many, many years later. One more anecdote about how difficult it was to contain and kind of resist that that atmosphere of fear. I had a source um, at the FBI who, he used to have to get up at four in the morning uh, and go through all the intel that had come in overnight about al-Qaeda and, you know, various terrorist terrorist threats around uh, the world and put together this thing that was called the threat matrix uh, that would go up to the president. Uh, So the president, every morning at his uh, intel briefing, could see um, everything that was happening out there. And so his idea was, well, we don't want to give the president everything. We only want to give him the most credible threats. And uh, he would kind of pare it down and kind of remove the extraneous stuff, the stuff that didn't, you know, was not well sourced or did not seem very real, like the guy who was caught, you know, with a box of steak knives headed to a wedding, you know, as a gift, um, or some crazy walk in an embassy who would say something, but there was actually no sourcing real, really behind that. And um, at one point, the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft, saw that the pile of intel reports that was going to the president in this threat matrix was getting, you know, thinner and thinner. And he chastised my source and said, no, we don't want to see a, you know, three or four page report. It's got to be thick. You need to put everything in there. And so he started doing that again. And what it did, uh, you know, I think was it fueled this continuing sense of fear that we were going to be hit again. And that had a real impact, I think, on the policies uh, going forward. And it also no doubt led to a lot of really crappy intelligence getting put into that threat threat matrix. Right. And so it, it, it feels like we've it feels like it. we've we've never regained our equilibrium in terms of our way to kind of assess and understand the risks that we face. Since 9/11, we've faced new and different threats, new and different risks. But we seem to be keyed up to take every single one of them to the maximum. Well, a few did more to demand that the uh, 
9-11 attacks be investigated and that there be accountability for them than uh, Kristen Breitweiser. I met her in the year, year or so after the attack. She was uh, one of the um, Jersey girls, a small group of New Jersey widows from 9-11 who were uh, quite vocal and quite prominent in lobbying for the creation of the 9-11 Commission and uh, had a lot to say about how the government responded. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Kristen Breitweiser, one of the original Jersey girls who um, lobbied for the creation of the 9-11 Commission and has been demanding accountability ever since. Kristen, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So we are on the 20th anniversary of that horrible day on 9-11 when so many perished, including your husband. And I, I just thought it would be good to start out just telling us what happened that day for you and how you learned about what took you place. You know, on the morning of September 11th, my husband, Ron, uh, left our home, uh, headed out to the city to work at his job at Fiduciary Trust. He was a money manager. He worked on the 94th floor of the South Tower, which was the second building to get hit. Um, And he called me a couple of minutes before nine to let me know that he was safe and okay, And he didn't want me to worry because uh, the building next to him had exploded. And, you know, I had no idea. I didn't have the television on. And so I turned the television on while we were talking. And I was just, you know, incredulous with what I was seeing. And, you know, we talked for a bit and he had told me that he had seen some people, um, you know, falling out of the building's windows next door, jumping out of the windows. And, um, you know, he just had said that he didn't want me to worry, that he loved me and that he was okay. And those were his final words to me, which give me enormous amount of solace because that's the way I want to remember it, um, that he was okay and that he loved me and he didn't want me to worry. And then moments later, I saw exactly where he was sitting on the other end of the phone explode because the second plane had flown into his building and he was in the immediate zone of impact from that plane's uh, crash into the building. And, you know, essentially from that moment forward, I just had so many questions along with some other widows, as you mentioned, the Jersey girls, as to how something like that could have happened, how it was in, in the most simplistic terms that my husband and 3,000 others could have simply gone to work that day and never come home. And what I found out in the years of researching was that we utterly failed as a nation to protect you know, our citizens from that attack. We knew an awful lot of information that could have prevented that attack. And in the 20 years since, it, it seems that the government, for a whole host of reasons, just does not want to share the information, to share evidence that they have, so that the families can hold the terrorists and their co-conspirators accountable. And Kristen, 20 years later, you still have, as you're implying, so many questions uh, about uh, what happened. Can you just, for the benefit of our listeners and also for some of the younger listeners, you know, who maybe don't remember 9-11 um, as well as, as we all do, what are some of the main questions that you have that you think should be answered and for whatever reason, the United States government has not answered them or has withheld information. Tell us about that. 
I think some of my core questions obviously revolve around why the hijackers were able to move with such incredible ease inside and outside of the country, why their uh, support network was not shut down, why the financial transactions that um, flew back and forth inside and outside of the country through known terrorist financial networks were not stopped, were not tracked. You know, when you pull back the veneer of 9-11 and you look at the facts and circumstances, what you learn is that the operatives that were involved were known operatives to the intelligencies and that, in my opinion, our agencies, namely the FBI, the CIA and the NSA, were following them, knew an awful lot about their plot. And for reasons that were investigated by the 9-11 Commission and the Joint Inquiry of Congress, you know, did not prevent the attacks from happening. So, you know, some of my questions revolve around the governmental failures, the intelligence community failures that stem out of that day, leading up to that day, and even, frankly, after that day. And then the other questions revolve around why the nation was so vulnerable that day, why, you know, we didn't have procedures in place, protocols in place that should have been in place, that were always in place, that for whatever reason on the morning of September 11th, just, you know, were not put into play. Um, And so as a result of that, thousands of people were killed. The reality is my husband was told to stay at his desk on the morning of September 11th. There was an open stairwell from top to bottom in his his building. And had he been told to immediately evacuate, he might have survived. And so, so things like that sort of keep me restless 20 years later. Questions surrounding why my government blocks information that the families need to hold the co-conspirators accountable. You know, obviously it's not comforting to know that my government has not prosecuted one co-conspirator of the terrorists. Yes, we have people down in Guantanamo, detainees in Guantanamo, some of whom have made self-ambitions as to planning the 9-11 attacks like KSM. And yet we will never be able to hold them accountable in an open court of law and frankly, it doesn't look very um, promising that we're going to even be able to do that in, in a so-called military uh, tribunal. And so at the end of the day, what you have is 3,000 homicides in broad daylight and this country really letting them go unanswered. And I think for a democracy that's supposed to be based on a rule of law, that's extremely troubling and problematic. Kristen, just picking up on that, just this past week, we had the spectacle of another hearing in the military commission attempt to bring the 9-11 perpetrators to trial in which there in a courtroom, reporters saw Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi bin al-Sheib, you know, apparently talking together, you know, on friendly terms, sort of yucking it up 20 years after that horrible event. What was your reaction when you read the reports of what took place just a few days ago in Guantanamo? You know, I think for the families, Guantanamo is is just a painful situation. To me, it represents um, the utter failure of my country to hold terrorists accountable. I think that as a nation, as a democracy, it would have been nice to have known that we were able and equipped to do that in open Article Three courts. And I think at the end of the day, to me, as a family member who lost a loved one who was murdered, I am not happy that you know, the reason why I can't hold those people accountable is because the CIA tortured them. To me, that is an obstruction of my my justice. 
And I don't see the U.S. government doing anything for the 9-11 families to remedy that, in my opinion, ripping away of our path to justice. And that's troubling. And I want them to be held accountable for what they did and for their self-admitted role in the murder of 3,000 people. And yet it seems that because of the government, my own government's missteps, mismanagement of them and their renditions and their detainment, I'm never going to get to do that. And um, I think that's pretty reprehensible coming from what this country is supposed to be. I mean, I think that, again, I keep harping on it, but 3,000 homicides took place in open daylight and they've gone unanswered for. And that's not something I would have ever thought to see in my own country. That's something that I would expect from other countries that my leaders deride. You know, places like uh, Cambodia or Russia or Chile, certainly not inside the United States of America. And I, and, and I hope things change under the Biden administration. I'm cautiously optimistic. A week ago, President Biden announced a declassification process for a lot of the 9-11 documents. Is that one of the reasons why you're a little bit hopeful? Or what's your assessment of that? A lot of people are saying he did it to avoid being picketed on 9-11. Yeah, I mean, I think the lead up to that was that the some of the families had made it very clear that they didn't want him at ground zero. Um, I think for many years, the families have been very respectful of administration after administration, Republican after Democrat, Congress, and what have you, with regard to their stonewalling of us. And I think at 20 years out, we're kind of fed up. And, you know, so they put the word out that they didn't want President Biden to be at ground zero to be at any of the ceremonies. And so President Biden has uh, decided to ask for a review of the documents. Now, whether that review is going to be as fulsome as, as needed, I don't know. I'm hopeful because that's all I've got left. 20 years out is hope. But what I can tell you is that my government has all the information it needs to hold all of the co-conspirators accountable, and they choose not to do it. And I think that that's problematic because I think if you don't hold people accountable, the message to the terrorists is that they can operate with free license inside this country. They can kill wantonly. And I think that that's an extremely dangerous message to send. And with regard to the governmental failures, the people in the government, like at the CIA, who failed to share information that they should have shared in order to prevent the attacks. People at the FBI who blocked investigations like on people like Mustawi. I think it's also troubling that those individuals were never held accountable, some of whom were given promotions um, and medals of freedom. I think that, again, you are going to have the same sort of problems that we saw exhibit themselves on September 11th over and over again until you hold people accountable and make it very clear that when 3,000 people are killed and it's because of bad judgment calls or, you know, other reasons, it's not acceptable. Kristen, you know, you've had 20 years now to um, think about the failures of the United States government, which you so eloquently describe. Uh, sadly, a lot of the mistakes that were made uh, can't be rectified. So I guess two questions for you. One is, after all of this reflection, what do you think is at the kind of core of the failure of the United States government? And maybe maybe it goes broader than the U.S. government. Maybe it's it's our society sort of at large. But the co- core failure to not respond appropriately. And is there anything that gives you hope that we as a country 
we'll do better the next time, you know, God forbid there's something as catastrophic as, as another 9-11. No, I mean, I don't have any hope that things will be better next time because no one was held accountable. So there's no reason, there's no impetus for people to do anything otherwise. And the reality is there was an utter failure, you know, leading up to on the day of and after September 11th, you know, on behalf of our intelligence agencies, on behalf of NORAD, on behalf of the FAA, on behalf of the airlines, the airport security, you know, even at the World Trade or the Port of It sounds like there's, there's sort of two levels of failure. There's a, a failure of competence and to execute properly. And then there's a failure of moral courage, political courage. I disagree. I respectfully disagree. I don't think it was a failure of moral courage and I don't think it was incompetence. I think when you have you know, people at the CIA knowingly withholding information about known Al-Qaeda operatives who had just participated in the USS coal bombing where 17 US sailors were killed, that is not incompetence. That is a knowing decision to withhold evidence to allow Al-Qaeda operatives to operate inside the country as they're planning a terrorist attack. That's not acceptable. And that why, should- why would, they, why would they, I'm trying to understand why they would do that. What is your, why do you think that, that happened? I, that's what I'd like to get an answer about. And unfortunately, the US government is not willing to tell the American public why that happened and hold the people accountable. But the reality is because that one small decision, and and by the way, that's one thing out of a whole host of others that contributed to the attacks being as successful as they were. But 3000 people died as a result of that. I wanna know as a person whose husband was killed and also as an American citizen, that that person or those people that made that judgment call are no longer working in those positions. Because again, you know, ironically, if we didn't hold them accountable immediately after September 11th, and then we had bad WMD intel take us into Iraq. And, you know, is it any surprise that you're leaving people in place that make bad judgment calls? One example you give, uh, which I'd love to hear you elaborate on, is that George Tenet, the director of the CIA at the time, shouldn't have been awarded the Medal of Freedom he should be in jail. Absolutely, 100%. You know, George Tenet, when he testified before the 9-11 Commission, was not being fully honest. And I think if the American public was given access to the information and the full facts and circumstances surrounding the CIA's role leading up to 9-11 and their, let's say, interactions with these hijackers for the 18 months at bare minimum with some of the 9-11 operatives, the American public would have an awful lot of questions. And I think that we are entitled to see that information. And I think we should be able to ask those questions of our intelligence agencies because we live in a democracy and 3000 people were killed. And I wanna know that those people are held accountable, just like I wanna know the terrorists are held accountable because anyone who failed to carry out their sworn duty to protect this country that day should be held accountable in addition to the terrorists who attacked this country that day. So, Kristen, just to flesh this out a bit for our listeners who might not be as familiar with all the details, what we're really talking about here is those two hijackers, Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Madar, 
who flew into LAX in January of uh, 2000 after attending the Al-Qaeda summit in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, that was being monitored and surveilled by the CIA. And the CIA was aware these guys had come into the country. And then they get taken in by a number of um, operatives in Southern California. They get put up with an apartment, they get bank accounts, and they're helped while they are in the United States planning 9-11. Now, there are two basic theories about this. Uh, You know, the official account is the CIA didn't fully realize the information it had or it hadn't circulated to the top uh, and then it and that's the reason it never got passed along to the uh, State Department and the FBI that they were in the country the one that that's the official account the theory uh, of Richard Clark the former White House counterterrorism advisor among others is that the CIA was hoping to recruit these guys and didn't want the FBI mucking around on their territory. And then there's the third uh, theory that this was somehow that they were being assisted by the Saudis and that there were Saudi operatives who were consciously assisting them uh, while they were planning the attacks. Give us your own sense of how you sort through the what we know about the facts of, of those two hijackers and what you believe to be the case. You know, listen, I think that it's probably an amalgamation of everything you just laid out. But I think when you pull out and you take other things in context along with what you just said, um, that's where the problems start to even um, sort of magnify. You know, when you consider that Rassam, Ahmad Rassam was captured at the border um, at the millennium in December of 1999, and you consider the arrival of those two hijackers into the LAX area, and you know that Rassam had connections to those two hijackers, that raises some serious questions. You know that Rassam was cooperating with the FBI. He was not getting tortured. He was giving them an awful lot of information. And so one has to wonder what that sort of information would have been uh, shedding some light onto. Additionally, you know, I am of the opinion that perhaps those two hijackers might have arrived into the L.A area a little bit earlier than January 2000. There is uh, some evidence that shows that they might have arrived earlier. And I question who they were living with and where they were living prior to uh, the January 15th arrival, how they got into the country, what were the aliases, did they have agency clearance to get into the country. But putting that stuff aside, I want to also mention that the two individuals also had uh, at some point in time lived with an FBI informant. Additionally, they were brushing up against Anwar Alaki, who was also known to our intelligence agencies. So again, you know, the official narrative of the 9-11 story makes it seem like these guys were, you know, out there on their own. I think uh, former director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, testified that, you know, they acted alone and we had no way of knowing. And, you know, that's just hogwash. It's just absolutely dishonest. And the reality is these guys were very well known to our intel agencies. Um, all of them, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA, DIA, the NSA in particular is one of my more favorite things. You're talking about an intelligence organization that was monitoring the Yemen switchboard, one of whom, you know, Midar's father-in-law ran the Yemen switchboard and bin Laden used it to communicate to his operatives 
you know, to carry out not only 9-11, but the USS Cole attack. And I think also probably the embassy bombing. But so again, our intelligence agencies knew an awful lot about these guys. So did foreign intelligence services that our intelligence agencies might have farmed out some work to. Whether or not that's the Saudis, can't say, because we're not allowed to see that information. And I think 20 years out, we should be able to see that information, particularly when you take into context what was shared with the American public regarding Khashoggi's murder. I think if you are able to share with the American public the private communications between a sitting crown prince, uh, in this case, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, and his tiger squad, then certainly, you know, communications that took place in 2018 and involved an alleged murder of Jamal Khashoggi, that information was given to the American public by President Biden in February. If that information can be shared, then you need to answer for me why information um, about wiretaps that came out of these two hijackers in California, Midar and Hazmi, and wiretaps out of the Yemen switchboard cannot be shared with the American public. Can any of you guys tell me why it shouldn't be? So I think just yesterday, the Saudi embassy uh, released a, a kind of a preemptive statement, once again, exclaiming that the Saudi government had no involvement in 9-11 and that it was, uh, I think, false and false and malicious claims persist. Yet many of the 9-11 families are continuing to seek discovery and uh, vindication in district court, in, in civil court uh, against what the Saudi role might have been in 9-11. What can you tell us about where those efforts stand? Um, well, I'll answer that in one second, but I just want to touch on what you just said about uh, the statement that they gave out yesterday. You know, I think their statement was interesting. It's kind of reminds me of what the 9-11 Commission likes to say, that they found no evidence. There's a difference between finding no evidence and there is no evidence. And I hope everyone considers that nuance, because if you don't look for something, you're not going to find it. And so with example of being the 9-11 Commission, they didn't look for the evidence. So that's why there was no evidence found. So keep that in mind. And the second thing is when it comes to the kingdom's knowledge of the hijackers, I would point out to Prince Bandar, the former ambassador, the Saudi ambassador to the US, whose wife somehow through, I guess, Riggs Bank sent some checks to the hijackers. But having said that, Prince Bandar was on CNN, I think around 2007. And he said that Saudi intelligence was closely monitoring the hijackers before the attacks and had tried to share that information with the US government. So I would just question the kingdom um, if they could try to give some clarity onto the discrepancy between their statement yesterday and the statements of Prince Bandar. Having said all that, this is the kind of information that the 9-11 families would like to get solely to hold anyone and everyone accountable who played a role in supporting the hijackers and the operatives that killed our loved ones. We feel that when a homicide takes place, the murderers should be held accountable. On the question of the Saudi role, I was reminded of something when I was just looking up some old clips uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, you were, as I mentioned before, you know, one of the uh, so-called Jersey girls who lobbied to create the 9-11 Commission and um, were very active. And the original, people don't remember this, but the original chairman who the Bush White House was going to appoint to head that commission was Henry Kissinger. 
and you and some of your fellow Jersey girls had an opportunity to meet with the famous Henry Kissinger right after he was uh, slated to take over that position. And um, the question of the Saudi role came up. Tell us about your um, uh, encounter with Henry Kissinger back then. Well, it was a very short encounter. I had done some, we had, the White House had appointed him to be the chair of the commission. And I did some uh, background research on him. Not that I needed to do that much because I think he's pretty well known. And so we had gone to the meeting very well prepared and we were sitting in his office, which I might add was like a hundred degrees, which I don't know whether he does that purposely to make people feel uncomfortable, but we were all literally sweating bullets. And so at one point during the meeting, we're asking him all kinds of questions. We're trying to be deferential. And my friend, uh, fellow Jersey girl, Lori Van Auken, decided to ask him if he had any conflicts and he couldn't understand how he could have any conflicts. And Lori extrapolated for him and mentioned, well, you know, do you have any, you know, Saudis as clients? And uh, I don't think he was quite used to having such a direct question because, you know, you're not supposed to really ever question uh, the integrity of someone like Henry Kissinger. And uh, he bobbled. He was drinking a cup of tea. And he bobbled his cup of tea and nearly fell out of his seat. <laughs> and unfortunately, filled the tea, he couldn't answer the question. What I will tell you is the very next day, we got attacked for forcing him to step down. But the reality is he resigned on his own. I guess he thought it was more important to serve his Saudi clients, the Bin Ladens, perhaps, uh, rather than serve his American citizens and be a patriot. That, that's an amazing story. I want to go back to uh, the issue of trying the uh, 9-11 perpetrators or not trying them since they have not really been prosecuted. But for some time at the start of the Obama administration, there was a plan to try them in civilian courts, Article Three courts in uh, the Southern District of New York. As most people know, that plan uh, fell apart. But the 9-11 families, I remember at the time... It seemed to me that the majority of, of them, correct me if I'm wrong, were actually opposed uh, to Article Three uh, trials. They actually wanted, is that not right? I know that yeah. there was, yeah. I think it was a faculty of the media uh, being a little uh, selective in its coverage. I think the reality is the 9-11 families wanted any sort of accountability whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Certainly there was a large swath that wanted to show the terrorists that we as a nation would be able to hold them accountable in our court of law. And so we failed to do that. And at the time, it was, um, frankly, Senator Lindsey Graham who led the charge to block us from having those open trials. And what we ended up with was the morass that you're currently seeing at Guantanamo. You know, Guantanamo is like quagmire wrapped up in a conundrum, you know, surrounded by a debacle. It is, um, it's a disaster and there is no justice there. What would you what would you want to say to Lindsey Graham right now? Because this is what I mean, more than 10 years after he was uh, uh, leading that charge against Article three you know, trials. Listen, I know enough about Senator Graham to know that he moves his positions the way I tack a sailboat. So which is a lot. And it's all about the prevailing winds. And so whether Senator Graham wants to hold the Saudis accountable for Jamal Khashoggi but yet let them off the hook for 9-11, or whether Senator Graham wants to talk about how he's tough on terrorists and he can invade countries and you know support drone strikes versus really holding them to account in an open court by the rule of law. 
you know, he's someone that moves his positions with the prevailing winds. And, you know, he's very difficult to get to want to hold anyone connected to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia accountable, unless, of course, it involves an interest of his. Chris, and just to uh, round this out, I want to take things back to that day 20 years ago. And something I've often wondered about, you mentioned that your husband, Ron, was on the 94th floor. Was it the North Tower or the South Tower? South Tower. The South Tower, which was the second building to be hit. And I've often wondered, do you think that he and the others who were in the building that day understood what was happening, that this was a terrorist attack? Ron totally didn't. Not at all. I mean, he called me. He just had no idea. He, He just... I think he thought like there was just like a fire or something. You know, he was sitting at his desk and he had like a window desk. And he said, he's like, you know, I was sitting there doing work. And he's like, my cheek got warm. And he's like, and I just looked over my shoulder and he's like, and I saw this like fireball. And he's like, it's just the whole building's on fire. And, you know, he certainly had no idea. I think I certainly had no idea. I mean, obviously I wish I did. I wish I had, you know, woman's intuition to say, get the hell out of there. I just didn't. I had no clue. I was so in a bubble. I didn't know who Al-Qaeda was. I didn't know who Bin Laden was. I didn't know, to quote Tenet, that the system was blinking red. I didn't know that Al-Qaeda was in the country planning an attack like so many people in our intelligence apparatus knew. I just didn't know those things. And so when he called to say that he was safe and okay, I was relieved. I was like, oh my God, thank God it's not your building. I'm, you know, are you okay? You know, what are you going to do? And he just, again, you know, the building and the Port Authority told people like Ron to stay at their desks. They did not tell them to immediately evacuate the building. That is something that haunts me to this day because the reality is the Port Authority managed the World Trade Center just like they managed Newark Airport. And the you know, information that a second plane was hijacked and bearing down on Ron's building could have and should have been shared with the Port Authority who, you know, was managing the World Trade Center. People like my husband should have been told to get the hell out of that building. And so many lives could have been saved had that information been shared and had people like my husband been told to evacuate. I was going to say, to me, it's such a staggering thought when you think about it, that that most, if not all, of the people who died that day had no idea that no. they were and the victims of a terrorist attack. That's one of the things that I testified about. I think that, and it goes kind of towards the transparency that I seek even to this day. Like, if you're not going to tell the American public, then number one, they can't be engaged and make decisions and vote um, for people that they want in their making foreign policy decisions. Okay, because at the end of the day, the reason why bin Laden attacked us is because of our foreign policy decisions from years before. But if you're not gonna share that information and, and give that level of transparency to the American public about the foreign policy decisions, about the fact that Al Qaeda you know, was bearing down on this country and about to carry out a domestic terrorist attack by using planes as weapons, which, again, was widely known in our intelligence apparatus, okay? Well, then, you know what? You're not doing your job by preparing your citizens 
to be engaged and informed. And I think that, that that's one of the hugest things that I, I still to this day fight for, because I think the American public should be given all of the information um, so that we can make our own decisions as to foreign policy and also how and you know what we can do to protect ourselves. Because what I can tell you is on the morning of September 11th, we were on our own. Our government did nothing in a defensive posture to mitigate the damage of those attacks. What will you be doing on Saturday, September 11th? You know, I'll be taking the day outside quietly in nature because that's the way I feel closest to Ron. Um, You know, I just will completely immerse myself outdoors, feel the sunshine, because that's that's how I feel closest to him. Well, Kristen, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts and um, insights on um, on this, you know, horrific anniversary. And uh, let's hope that your demand for transparency, at least, if not full accountability, might finally bear some fruit in the weeks ahead. Thanks. Thank you. We now have with us Karen Greenberg, the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School and the author of Subtle Tools, American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. Karen, welcome to Skullduggery. So nice to be here. So your book takes a look at sort of the course of American response to 9-11 from that day to right up to today. Uh, Your argument is that our response has done grievous damage to the American democratic process system and um, needs to be rethought. Let's start out by talking about the what you refer to in your title as subtle tools that were used to you, you know, that you argue has sort of undermined um, our values and our system of government. What are these subtle tools you're referring so, to? These subtle tools, none of these will surprise you, but we haven't really acknowledged them as tools. One of them is imprecise, vague language. One of them is uh, secrecy. One of them is bureaucratic confusion, which I call bureaucratic porousness. And one of them is the willful abandonment of laws and norms. And together they created a set of tools. We referred at the beginning to the, you know, the damage that was done, the policies that were made. It's how the policies were made, not just what was done. And so my argument is that unless you correct in very strong ways, the way this was done, unless you say these tools cannot be used in the way they were used, then we're sitting ducks for this kind of thing to happen again. Well, just to elaborate, like explain how these subtle tools have sort of wormed their way into um, governmental policies and have been counterproductive. Give us some examples of what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for example, imprecision in language in what I call the ER document or foundational document of the war on terror, the authorization for the use of military force of 2001, doesn't name an enemy, doesn't have a geographical location that it names, doesn't have a temporal limit, and doesn't refer in any way to the end of hostilities. 
Now, this is in contradistinction to other authorizations for force and to other declarations of war. And that became a, a gave to the president the ability to use force when, where, and how he wanted in the name of this vast undefined war against those who had brought about 9-11. And that, that use of vague terminology sort of colored so much of what went on inside government and what I call the culture of governments uh, after 9-11, including in the creation of um, institutions like the Department of Homeland Security, which never had a real definition and still to this day is intentionally imprecise so that it can pivot, for example, from counterterrorism, in which it was named, to something like border issues, which it became primarily focused on even before Donald Trump, to use in Black Lives Matter protests, etc. So it's just this kind of like, if you make it, the more vague you make it, the more authority you can, you can have. We saw this with Obama. This is something Dan can speak on with the use of the word imminence in the sense of redefining terms. Imminence until Obama meant something that was about to happen. In, our toga- in his uh, targeted killing strategy, it meant bad actors, targeting bad actors who might someday harm us. And of course we saw Trump do that uh, with uh, Soleimani um, using it against, taking it one step further, using it against a state actor, not just a non-state actor. So once you let these things out, it's very hard to pull them back. So Mike won't normally let me talk about the authorized use of military force or (laughs) or, or AUMF. The authorization. To use uh, authorization of force. to the use of military force. We have force. to be precise. It, very good. Here. Thank very you. Good point. <laughs> AUMF. That's why it's easier to just say AUMF. So you know, Congress is trying to, or there's a like a huge effort to repeal or, or reshape the AUMF right now. A failing effort to do that. What has that decision wrought? It's been sitting on the books for almost 20 years now. What has it meant for America's adventures abroad? It's expanded to, I believe, 18 countries. It's been used for dozens of strikes in addition to its initial you know, use in Afghanistan. It's so it's been a, a sort of like a you know a free a freebie for what you want to do. And to your point about repeal, you know, and and replace, I wanted it to be about repeal. It's suddenly it it it's always been about replace. They've never really been able to do that. And I'm always wondering, what does it mean replace exactly? Because we have to have an authorization for the use of force just in case. It just seems like Congress is hooked on this AUMF. It's almost like they just they can't quit it. And and not only, and that's so interesting because in in signing the AUMF Congress gives up its powers to make incremental precise decisions about where force can be used, right? It's Congress's power to declare war. It's the commander in chief power to conduct the war. What the authorization for the use of military force does is say the president has these powers and therefore, right? So it's a it's surprising with Congress being so reticent, and I think it's political and speaking to the base and not wanting America to seem weak when, you know, from one point of view, you could say the more you surround yourself with these kind of hard powers in some kind of vague way, the weaker you look, 
if you trust the powers you have and your ability to use your intelligence to see what real threats or specific threats are coming down the pike, then you can address those. But it's um, anyway, it's still with us and it's been with us for 20 years. And the pullout out of Afghanistan doesn't make it look like it's any closer to true sunset. Yeah. And I wanted to pick up on that, Karen, because your book makes a pretty uh, persuasive case that these policies were you know, continued and embraced by now four presidents, two Republicans and two Democrats. Um, and I'm curious about whether there were moments and where those moments were along the way when we might have been able to pivot away from some of these policies. And the one that I think about, you talk about the AUMF being the foundational document of the war on terror, but I think the Obama administration had its own foundational legal document, which I think was in not long after Obama came into office, March 13th, 2009, when they had to submit a brief in a case in in, um, U.S. District Court in Washington. And that was a fork in the road. They chose to go one way and not the other way. Tell us about that moment. A hundred percent. So that's in my other book, Rogue Justice, but I'd love to talk about it, which is, is, um, and and I'm so glad you mentioned this because so few people do. That was the document that created the phrase that we all live with so well, associated forces, right? Al-Qaeda and associated forces all that was was saying, we just want to double down on as much as possible on this imprecision. We'll tell you who's associated. We'll tell you where they are, right? Without any need to contain and think of this in truly a kind of specific, precise way. And so, and the interesting thing, they did that in regard to, right, detention. Right. It was a detention authority they were challenging in the courts. But once they'd done it for a detention, it could be used for anything in term, including targeted killings. And so it just goes to show you how and this gets to my bureaucratic porousness idea as well, how authorities that were for one part of the government and one set of powers could morph or just be hijacked or taken to another set of authorities. And, and, and this was essentially I mean what lawyers call it, like judge-made law, right? Um, This was not, I mean, Congress did not lay out what the battlefield could be um, in this AUMF, right? This was something that the Obama administration put in a legal brief and it was approved by a district court judge in Washington. And then we were off to the races. No, that's exactly right. Once again, you know, Congress didn't need to be bypassed. They were all too willing to to sort of defer. And so, you know, you just this was just one example, both in terms of the courts and Congress of deferring to the president when it came to anything that has to do with national security. And the idea was we can't have another 9-11. And with that phrase, I mean, you all know very well with that phrase, what what judge, what Congress was going to stand up to that? And and no one did until, by the way, the pull out of Afghanistan last week. And yet, Karen, what would you say to those who would argue, yeah, but these policies worked? We haven't had another 9-11. We haven't had a foreign terrorist attack, uh, you know, launched from abroad on U.S. soil. And that's in large part because of the aggressive measures, whether it be the invasion of Afghanistan under the AUMF or the Patriot Act or other measures that the Bush administration took. All that did, in fact, prevent what a lot of people thought was inevitable at the time, and that is 
more terrorist attacks by Al-Qaeda? A follow-on attack. So that's a really hard question, but I think there's an answer. And the answer is, how do you know that's what prevented another attack? And there's two parts to that. One is- Well, there's no way to prove it, but the fact is- Let me just go on here. One is, with something we're not really encouraged to talk about, which is we should have prevented 9-11. Our intelligence forces and our, you know, whether it was, you know, communications issues or whatever, or the National Security Council, you know, getting it onto the onto the desk of the highest officials earlier, whatever it was. So that's one thing that that we act like that was inevitable. And then I think the second part of it is that can't we take a step back and say, look how robust and newly professionalized in the area of terrorism and counterterrorism, our intelligence agencies have become. And the same thing with our globally deployed law enforcement agencies and the same thing with our special ops. Why is it that if we have this entire structure, we still are not willing to say we need new authorities for each new encounter? How is it possible that we just go into Somalia without having to bring that up to Congress? If we're, why can't we trust in our authorities to say, we see a threat, we need to respond to the threat, we need to respond to it this way, and go to Congress and get that authorization in real time for what's there? Why does it have to be a blanket? Well, they, well one answer is Congress is completely dysfunctional and only the executive branch could act unilaterally and quickly to counter particular threats. And that's, by the way, possibly an argument why Congress is, is addicted to the AUMF, right? Because it, it doesn't have to take responsibility for military no. actions abroad that presidents do. That, that's exactly right. And um, look, I just think that more precision is, is better. And if you have a president, I'm sure you can't imagine this, but if you had a president who wanted to ask on his own authority um, and do whatever he wanted, that would be a problem. And, you know, I mean, this is part of the problem. And I'd be interested in what you guys think about this. I mean, Obama's approach to this was basically, trust me, because I know how to handle these authorities. I know the law. I know the limits. I respect the law. I, I embody, I'm here to embody the rule of law, right? And so it was kind of like, trust me, government, rather than let's repeal the AUMF, right? Even after the killing of bin Laden as as uh, Biden referred to when we pulled out of Afghanistan. So there's that piece of it too. Well, on that point, and and also this gets to your larger issue of imprecise language, I want to read you something interesting that's in today's Washington Post about one of the hearings yesterday in the January 6th case. Second judge questions charge in January 6th case. A second federal judge in Washington questioned whether the lead felony charge leveled by the government against Capitol riot defendants is unconstitutionally vague as 18 oath keepers accused in a conspiracy case urged the court on Wednesday to toss out a count carrying one of the heaviest penalties. And U.S. Judge Amit Mehta, who's an Obama appointee, by the way, asked how federal prosecutors distinguish felony conduct qualifying as, quote, obstructing an official proceeding of Congress, punishable by up to 20 years, from misdemeanor offenses the government has charged others with, such as shouting to interrupt a congressional hearing. Quote, essentially what you said is, trust us, Meta said, and that is a real problem when it comes to criminal statutes to suggest we know it when we see it and we'll pick and choose when it is appropriate exercise of prosecutorial discretion. So it sounds like this issue of imprecise language is now carrying over 
to the efforts to prosecute the January 6th folks. And, um, you know, that could be cited as an example of, you know, you talked before about morphing, using powers set up for one purpose, being morphed into another purpose. But what's your reaction when you hear that? I mean, is the federal government improperly going after the January 6th people with vague language in order to throw the book at them when they shouldn't be? Well, it's a really good question. And the reason is that, yes, there are bad habits that they've gotten used to that have been allowed. You know, void for vagueness is grounds for throwing something out of court, decide, you know, judges can use this as they want. But so you would side with Meta here. You think he, he's would, right, and maybe some of these conspiracy charges against the Oath Keepers should be tossed. I would definitely, I would definitely look at them. I think conspiracy opens itself up to void for vagueness, up to vagueness uh, charges. So I'd have to look at it pretty carefully. But I do think vagueness is something that we can't just overlook. I think it's dangerous, and I think that the ability there are, you know, specific things that you can get people on. And it might be more of a problem with the conspiracy portion of this than, right, than actual this case. But I think it's something worth paying attention to in this context or any other context. One of the problems with the uh, January 6th riots cases is that prosecutors, for reasons I don't quite understand, seem a little flailing around about what to charge them with. Have you noticed that? They're sort of like, what? Yeah. I mean, and and so I think it speaks to that. I think they're finding themselves in a void and they haven't quite figured out how to use the laws we have to charge these individuals, which I find somewhat fascinating because it speaks to do we need a domestic terrorism statute, right, which we don't have a federal domestic terrorism statute, which I'm not sure that I think there, it has less supporters than it used to have, oddly enough, in current times. So to your point, I don't like thinking that you can't charge these individuals. I do think that overly vague uh, ways for charging people, in addition to overly vague ways for waging war, is a prescription for real trouble. Is it precise to call the January 6th rioters insurrectionists? So one of the things about language that I go into is how we couldn't come up with a term for them. I do think that they were insurrectionists in their intent. I do think, interestingly enough, we're not going to use the Insurrection Act, right? That's been sort of pushed right. aside. You know, the word that they used for them most often that day when they were scrambling around for words was terrorist. You know, these were terrorists. Right. And to me, that meant, wow, we've sort of come to the end of the 9-11 era. If we're willing to use this word terrorist in this circumstance, attacking the Capitol, this is really, we're finally moving our way out of it. I don't think it's inappropriate to call them insurrectionists. The question is legally, are they insurrectionists? Yeah, let, let me just uh, pick up on the point you made about that they were called terrorists, because as you know, after January 6th, there was you know, something of a debate in this country about whether uh, we need to have a domestic terrorism uh, statute. And I don't know where you where you stand on that, but I guess the question that your book raises in some ways is if Congress did create a domestic terrorism law, would that not just be a part of the problem that you raise, a continuation of a morphing of, you know, the policies and the laws uh, that were embraced on 9-11 to the domestic context? No question. 
The idea of a domestic terrorism law is a prescription for disaster. And I think more people recognize that than used to. It's taken so long to sort of get it on the agenda. It took January 6th to really get Congress to focus on it. All it will do is take things that already should come out of the Freedom Act, right? And the and the and the ways the Patriot Act, which does not define terrorism, by the way, the way the Patriot Act empowered other laws to broaden and be more expansive that doing that with domestic terrorism, with the idea of domestic terrorism, again, without a definition, and if you do have a definition, it's going to look racist or you know discriminatory in one way or another. Um, how on earth are you going to keep it from being used in really nefarious ways? It's one of the reasons that they didn't push it during the Trump administration was the idea that it would be used against those that Trump had seen as his enemy, right, it, domestically. And it's a, it's not a great idea. It's a bad idea. <laughs> so we've watched the spectacle of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan uh, over the last month. And uh, the Taliban forms a, uh, a new government in which a wanted FBI terrorist, Takani, is the acting interior minister. Haqqani of the notorious Haqqani Network, which is uh, closely aligned with al-Qaeda. If, in fact, as many counterterrorism experts fear, we are going to see jihadis once again flocking to Afghanistan, al-Qaeda reconstituting and using that country once again as a basis to attack the West, isn't that going to likely sort of reignite all the fears that led us down the path that you've outlined in this book once again. And uh, we're going to see a repeat or certainly a refortification, perhaps, of many of the tools that you decry. We've already seen it. We've already seen it. The predictions of how bad what's going on, what's going to happen in the next two, five, 10 years about how Al-Qaeda, Al -Qaeda, not just terrorist groups, but Al-Qaeda will rise up again. And I, there's a couple of ways to think about this. The first thing is that the Taliban are a different position than they were in last time. And who knows how negotiations with them, with their looking for some kind of standing among nations, may serve as a point for some kind of leverage or deal or whether it could be trusted. But I think the other part is we're not either as a country or as a globe, where we were prior to 9-11 in terms of counterterrorism capacities of law enforcement, of intelligence, and more. I do think that there needs to be, in addition to this idea of some hard power and how we're going to address this, the sense that um, we didn't take care of this right the first time. We went from invading Afghanistan, let's talk about Afghanistan for a minute, to nation building, to uh, counter and counterinsurgency in ways that failed, although we didn't even recognize that we were failing. And the one thing we didn't do, and we didn't do it enough, was to look at the whole picture and to look at who these people were that were flocking to terrorism and what, what their grievances were about. And the degree to which we now are in a situation where there are 82.5 million displaced persons many of them in the countries of the Middle East, the greater Middle East, and we have more to come given climate change. We need to address as a globe, not just as a country, as a globe, that part of what can lead to states collapsing and unable to take care of their people, terrorist groups 
standing in and exploiting that. And if we don't do that, I do see this as a repeat of the same thing over and over. And the next, and the other thing is that I don't, I don't think we should minimize the importance of Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden do not come around every day. What he was able to do, one of the reasons the United States and others sort of didn't give enough credit to what he threatened was because it is not that easy to create the kind of network and to assume the kind of leadership that he was given. And you might disagree with me on that, but I, I also think that's a part of it. And I do think that, again, it's about precision. It's about who's there and what they're doing, not about everybody who might be uh, the next Osama bin Laden. And that is a skill that we really need to focus on. Karen, do you think um, the uh, Biden administration is going to get serious behind AUMF uh, reform or repeal? Because the indications that I've seen so far is particularly with the withdrawal in Afghanistan and now the over her over the horizon counterterrorism you know policy that they're just not going to do that they will support repealing the 2003 Iraq AUMF that's a lot easier to do i think the the 2002 Iraq is a is a, is a done deal you know in that sense i think that's right i do think the 2001 may not happen not because they don't understand what it's about but because they have other priorities, and that's a battle they, they might not want to fight. I, I think it's arguably less likely now because of Afghanistan, because right. they need the 100%. latitude to order, atta- or Biden needs the latitude to order attacks to respond to any terrorist threat. I think that's right. By the way, they could still rewrite it and say that. <laughs> that would yeah. still be but more But then again, define the enemy, as you point out. The you know the one of the vagueness aspects of this was who exactly is the enemy? Because I mean, the you, it, that, it was the know, Taliban. Well, right? it was the it was <laughs> any organizations <laughs> that helped and assisted yeah. those who planned, and that was such elastic language that it allowed um, the Bush people to interpret it and the Obama people to interpret it in many different ways. Karen, I want to uh, thank you for joining us. The book is Subtle Tools and. Um, Anybody interested in how the U.S. government responded to 9-11 would do well to read it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. 